Revelation chapter number 3, as we continue on in our uh, series through the book of Revelation. And before we start, let's begin in a word of prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to come together and sing praises unto your name. And we thank you, Lord, for the church. Uh, Lord, we thank you that it's your church, that you are the one who stands in the midst. You're the head of the body. You are captain. You are chief. You are redeemer. You are Lord of all. And we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us and for the privilege it is to meet together at your body as your body this evening. In order to pray as we uh, get into your word, as we look at these churches, you would help us to see, especially this evening, um, what a wonderful example this church at Philadelphia was. And for us, Lord, to aim to be a church like this. And Lord, we pray that you would help us in that, that you would guide us, that you would, uh, Lord, give us strength and courage to be willing to make the sacrifices necessary to be a church like this. And Lord, that we would grow in reputation, in number, in strength, and our impact in the community, just as the church at Philadelphia did all those years ago. So Lord, I pray you would help me this evening, you would use me, speak through me, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are continuing on in our our journey through Asia Minor um, this evening, and we are in stop number six of seven. And I said to you that this is one of the, you know, the trade routes, so and the letters would have gone round and gone in that order, and we've had the, the five churches that have come before, and, and really, um, the last few stops that we've had have presented us with, with ugly reading, as it were. Um, we've had the dead church at Sardis. Before that, we had Thyatira, which was the depraved church. Before that, it was Pergamos, the divided church. And um, although there was some things to draw out, the Lord had um, some negative things and quite strong things to speak against those churches. And we are to watch for those things setting in in the church today. In our church, in Milton Baptist Church, we have to be aware that the things that came in and, and for a large extent in some of those churches, the Lord was true to his word and he came and he, he took the light away. And we have to be very mindful of that. So it's been a little bit of hard reading, as it were, as we've looked at the churches and the kind of conditions spiritually of those churches. I've also tried to draw out for you that it does really paint a very good picture of the church age. We are dispensational in this church, so I talk about the church age a lot, and and I really do think this paints a picture of it. And um, now we get to this church, Philadelphia. And, And to be honest, it's a nice change in the narrative. It's nice to talk about a church that's doing it right. And we did. We talked about that um, um, right at the start when we looked at the first two churches. And although Ephesus was a a, a drifting uh, church, the church at Smyrna was a delightful church. The church at Philadelphia is another delightful church. And we're going to see this, and it's nice to um, see this, and, and like I said, not be bogged down in, in, in churches that are really just getting so much wrong. We want to look at a church that got so much right, and a period in church history, which is still going on today, but which started the great movements uh, of this world, missionary movements in the 18th and 19th century, and we're going to have a look at that This church was a church that brought nothing but pleasure to the heart of God. And that's what his body should do. That's what the church should do. He shouldn't be grieved over his church. We talked about this this morning. 
But the Lord should be pleased over his church. He should delight to see his people do what they're called to do and to act how they're called to act and to live the life that he has given them in the abundance of grace, gracefully and humbly. Philadelphia was a church that really did all those things. This is the church that we should aspire to be. The church at Philadelphia. So let's read the report, as it were. It's almost like their school card, their school report from the headmaster. And uh, we're going to read, read it out. And again, don't forget and don't be, um, you know, don't try and always keep this in your mind that there are real, real people at the end of this that have kind of heard all the negative stuff that's come before and then are maybe waiting to hear what the Lord has to say about them. And, and there can be no greater blessing than to hear the Lord of all glory say, well done, well done. I know I want to hear that. I want to hear that. Not for my benefit, but for for him, for his glory. Because of what he's done for me, I want to live my life so that he will say of me, well done, my good and faithful servant. So let's read the report. Revelation chapter number 3 and verse number 7. The Lord of God says this, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make of them, make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So as we think about uh, this church at Philadelphia, we, we, as we've done before, we do a little bit of background history on them, not too much, because I'm not a historian, I'm a preacher, so <laughs> you'll get a little bit and that's it. But the name Philadelphia from the start, I'm sure some of you may know that it means brotherly love. And when you look uh, in the Greek at the different forms of love, phileto love is, is a type of brotherly love, a brotherly affection. And the name Philadelphia means brotherly love. And, and the city was so named because it was founded by two brothers. One was called Adalus, the other Eumenides. They had coins minted with the two brothers on. These images were completely alike, but that's where the, the city uh, got its name. It's in, in the course of the cities that we've looked at, it's relatively young in historic terms, built around 150 BC is what they say. And it was the purpose of the city was to spread Hellenism. 
uh, spread this Greek influence across the land. You know, and Hellenism was, was this kind of humanistic, philosophical, classical ideals of, of a, a society of, of knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge and moderation and civic responsibility. Um, you know, that's kind of Hellenism in, in a nutshell. And this place was built to be a platform for it, uh, for the uh, cities and towns around. It was built with an eye uh, for the future. It was to be, as it were, an example for the other cities around it. It was almost like a Greek missionary plant into the east. And that's kind of important when we think about the, the church at Philadelphia, and we'll have a look at that. Um, it was a major hub of communication. Its location there is about 25 miles south of uh, Sardis. So it was a major hub of communication and uh, a lot of information was disseminated and passed out into uh, the, 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 the east there from uh, Philadelphia. Um, its geography, just like um, Sardis, we talked about this last time. If you remember, it's sat on a, a Acropolis, sits upon a, on hills. And it had an elevated position, not as high as, as what we had before, um, but certainly about a thousand feet above sea level. So still quite high up. Uh, again, situated on a main trade route, so um, a lot of trade would have flown, uh, uh, gone through uh, the place. Um, one of the things that they, they did, they had this kind of custom where um, um, in in, in uh, honourable kind of visitors or honourable dignities um, would have had a, a temple made for the God that they worshipped in their honour. And one of the things they would have done as part of that whole uh, ceremony of, of dedicating that temple is on the pillars that then they would have um, the honourable sitting's uh, name and his deeds were recorded on those pillars. So we're, we're going to come back to that because this is a city of pillars. And the Lord uses this at the end of this letter to them. Um, we'll have a look at this later in verse 12 when he talks about he will make them a pillar in the temple of my God. They knew exactly the language that the Lord was using. He used the languages that they needed to hear in the context that they were in. And, and the Lord's just amazing, amazing how he just uses these little things to speak into the lives of those people and turn it around and give them reassurance. And we're going to see that. Um, so although um, there's a very much a humanist aspect to the city I guess and how, how, it, how, it, how it grew but it was shaken by an earthquake they say AD 17 the city was uh, devastated and, and after that it continued to be shocked by these uh, earthquakes and um, so Philadelphia as a church, we have seen there that the background, it's brotherly love, it's associated with the, these pillars. It was also a, 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 a kind of a missionary place for the Greek uh, Hellenistic mindset and way of thinking that would have went out uh, across into the east there and, and kind of uh, put those ideas out there to uh, move those people towards that type of thinking. Now, that's Philadelphia itself. Again, how does the Lord speak to them? And um, as I've said, the Lord kind of references back to um, aspects of Revelation chapter number 1 and his unveiling, and he deals with these churches. Um, Philadelphia is a little different because he uses some other references that don't appear in Revelation chapter number 1. But there are, in verse 7, there's four aspects there revealed of Christ's character to us. 
in, in Revelation 3, verse 7, it says, Unto the angel in the church of Philadelphia, right? These things saith he is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. So there's four aspects there. The first aspect that you can see, I'm sure, is that he is holy. And, you know, this is a truth that we need reminded of day in, day out. God is holy because there are many that, that throw God's holiness under a bus for the sake of love. And bring out love as, as the major character of God. And love covers a multitude of sins. This is terrible exegesis. But that's the mentality. But God's holiness, I would say, is his central attribute. And everything else springs out of his holiness. His holiness is supreme. It's supreme. And the Lord introduces himself here. And, and again, I don't think this is any coincidence because as we're moving through the church, church age, and as I've said, we've come along, and, and last time I told you we were dealing with the Reformed churches that came out during the Reformation but actually ended up going back in and becoming state churches this, this period in church history brings us to this great awakening in the 18th and 19th century that we're going to see where people got back to doing exactly what God wanted them to do and to go out with the gospel and to be those missionaries and, and to stay upon God's word because God was holy. But not only was he holy, he was true. And that's what the Lord says. He that is holy, it's his first thing, he that is true. And, and this, is, this is not a truth that contrasts falsehood. This is, this is truth that is solid, genuine, fixed truth. It's not that God is true. He is the truth. He is the truth. Jesus himself reaffirmed that. I am, comma, the way, comma, truth. The truth. Not a truth, not one of many truths, but the truth. And, and again, that's the whole thing about, you know, it's all or nothing with the Lord. So yes, the church at Sardis, it came out, but it didn't come all the way and it ended up going back in. And now we get to Philadelphia and the Lord lays down his characteristics and he says, I'm holy and I am true. Not part of me, not bit of me, all of it. And that's the way it should be. I mean, Claire says this, she says this a lot, that I think very binary, that I think in a very simplistic way. And I, I do. You know, one of the things, like, because I didn't grow up around church. I didn't. And, you know, one of the things that, that, that you know, and I've, I've learned to become more gracious, but when I first get saved, I was like, why don't Christians do what God says? And I couldn't get that. I couldn't get that. Why is it that there's only, you know, this core group of people that seem to be sold out for the Lord? And, and you, you know, you know who they are. And you're sitting here tonight and you may be one of them. But not all of you are sold out for the Lord. There's a time in my life where I wasn't sold out for the Lord. Far from it. I'm not judging. That's just the way it is. But, you know, in my naivety, I'm like, well, if that's what God says... Well, why do we not all do it? And it is as simple as that. Why go a little bit of the way for God, but not all the way? Why, why put the toe in and, and take it out? Why live in and out? I mean, that must be miserable. It must be. 
Amen. I'm not going to jump until for jumping. I'm out. In, out. In, out. Walking up and down. In the world, out of the world. In the world, out of the world. Conviction, conviction. What? It's like, choose. Choose. That's what Elijah said in Mount Carmel. Halt thee not between two opinions. That word halt means stagger not. It doesn't mean stop. It means don't stagger between two. Make your mind up. If God be God, serve him. But the church here in Philadelphia uh, entering into this church is, is a church that recognized God was holy, the Lord was holy, and he was true. And as a result of that, they were sold out for him. And what an impact they're going to have. Verse 7, he is holy, he is true. The Lord goes on to say, he that hath the, king, or the key of David. There's only one other reference to this in Scripture, Isaiah 22. And you can look there in your own time. And have a look at the context of that. I don't want to do all the work for you. You know, give you some homework to do. Go and have a look at Isaiah 22. See the other reference. See the context. The context is really authority. So again, it's the Lord just saying this. I have the authority. I have the authority. I'm holy. I'm true. I'm the one that hath authority. And because of all that, he says, He that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. That's the Lord of missions. That's the Lord of the church. When he opens a door, it's an effectual door. We're going to see that as we go on this evening. Actually, let's, let's look at it now. Let's turn to Acts 16. Verse 6. You're dealing with Paul's missionary journey, his second missionary journey. And it says here, verse 6, Now when they had gone through Thrygra and this region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, door shut. Door shut. 1 Corinthians verse 16, or chapter 16. We're going to see a door opened. As Paul recounts of the, the opening of that door. One Corinthians chapter sixteen, verse number eight. But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. Notice what Paul says, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Now we'll talk about that later. But I want you to know that, that in Paul's life, he recognized and experienced God shutting doors and God opening doors. And he learned a great lesson in that to do what God wanted him to do so that when God opened the door, he walked through it. And when God shut the door, he walked away from it. That's sensible Christian living. That's sensible Christian living. Because the God who's holy, the God who's true, the God that has authority is the God that opens the door for opportunities, for gospel witness, for missions, for countries that flourish under the gospel. God is the door opener. Not us. We have to rely on God. 
you know, the problem is, I think, that we are too used to opening doors ourselves and walking through them when we shouldn't and then seeing an open door and walking past it. You know, a great principle that I've learned in my ministry life, and, and this has been through trying to force open doors that I shouldn't and vice versa, trying to make doors appear when they're not there, is here's the thing. Two little thoughts, and they tie together. Number one, serve where you're set. Serve where you are. Serve where you're set. Principle number one. Principle number two, this is important, if God opens a door, walk through it. Simple. If there's no doors open, serve where you're set. When God opens a door, walk through it. Not complicated. Now, discerning which doors God has opened and which doors you want open, that's a thing for you and God to work out as you pray and you meditate upon the word and, and seek direction from him and, and don't go until he gives you a word from his word, clearly. So Christ reveals this aspect of his character and it is important because, like I said, we're thinking about this, the church age and this is the period now of the 18th and 19th century. We're going to see what's really birthed modern missions as we call it. And, and it, it was God opening those doors, but the people had to walk through it. And why did they walk through the doors? Because number one, he was holy and he was true. And they got back to reading God's word and reading that God had commanded us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And they did it. Went out. So Philadelphia represents that period in, in church history. But what about the church themselves? You know, we can look back and we can refer to that period in church history. But also then we look at the church itself in its real historical time frame. And what is the Lord's report? So we've been a little bit heavier in introduction today, this evening, but that's okay. And we're going to see why it's okay. Because there's a couple of sections here where there's not too much to say. So I have to fill some time. So we've done it with the introduction. But what's the, what's the commendation? So look at verse 8. Let's get back into Revelation chapter number 3. And verse 8. And again the Lord says, I know thy works. And you know, this is a tie-on from what we spoke about this morning. God is watching. God is watching. I know thy works. Behold, I have sent before thee an open door. No man can shut at this. Hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. So again, from the standpoint of, of church history, we look at this, you know, Sardis, um, Theatira came out of Sardis, and then Philadelphia really comes out of uh, Sardis also. And, and you know, it's, it's um, a church that's marked by its faithfulness. But notice... Says, thou hast a little strength. The, the church that birthed the modern missionary movement wasn't a big denomination. It wasn't a huge uh, church. It was faithful believers. You know, it really begins with the Moravians. When you look at them, and they're just, they, were, they weren't huge in number, but they got back to God's word and to being faithful. And out of that was, was birthed these great, great movements across. Uh, you know, uh, uh, our, our period of church history that we really call the, the, the golden age of church history. It was beautiful. We have the Great Awakening in, in North America. We have the uh, revival of the modern missionary movement. You know, we have the story of William Carey, and we know that well. This is the, the type of Philadelphia church um, period that we're dealing with. David Livingstone, 
going into Africa. Adonai Judson going into Burma, Burma. Hudson Taylor going into China. And, and these were doors that the Lord opened. And these were uh, churches and bodies of believers of little strength. But the Lord opened the door. And what a door it was. You know, you go to those countries today and those believers that are worshipping across the world today are there as a result of the gospel. But those that took the gospel because the Lord opened the door and they walked through it. And there were many at the time said, don't go through that door. That's not a door that the Lord's opening. Sir, if, if the Lord wants to save the heathen, he's perfectly capable of doing it himself. Paraphrasing, but that's what was said to Kerry. Don't go. But Kerry's heart burned because the Lord had opened the door. And that man went, and if you read the account and the story of his life, it was trouble and it was turmoil. And yes, he made some mistakes along the way. He was a man. But the impact that that man had was immense. Why? Because he recognized God was holy. He was true. He was authoritative. And he was a door opener. And he, see, he saw God open the door and he walked through it. The Lord opened those doors. Many of those doors are shut today. The Lord, the Lord shut it. You know, Moldova, Matthew Hillier, again, Moldova's in the news and it's on our hearts, so we'll, we'll talk about it. He always says that the Lord has opened an amazing door. He recognizes that it's the Lord that's doing it. You know, if you see the work that they're doing and the impact that they're having, he understands. All the things that he has are of the Lord. All the things that have been able to be achieved for the gospel are of the Lord. He recognizes that, that they were of no strength, but the Lord was with them. There's a, there's a man there, and I will uh, attempt at some point when they're over to get him to come and tell his testimony. His testimony is brilliant. It's a Russian, Russian man called Sergei. And, um, you know, not, not to steal his thunder, but he, he worked, he was, he's Russian, and he used to work on the oil uh, tankers. And he used to come over and go to the north of Scotland and, and dock there and then back and forward. And that's all he's seen of the Western world. But there were those that had missions to those uh, Russian sailors and would give them Bibles. And, and, you know, I'm not spoiling the whole thing, but, you know, he took a Bible back, started to read, and, and he got saved. But he will tell you that at one point in Russia's history, not that long ago, after the kind of great... Uh, fallen of the Iron Curtain um, and Gorbachev and everything that came in there, there was a real open door for the gospel. It was just amazing. That door has been shut now. And he recognizes that. It's a shut door. And that doesn't mean that people uh, can't get saved in, in, in a place where God has shut the door. It just means that when God opens the door, there is a special blessing that goes out across that nation where God is working in a miraculous way, bringing people onto himself. And it's the Lord that opens those doors. This country had a door that was open for many, many years. I honestly think the Lord shut that door. Because of how we've behaved and responded. And that doesn't mean that there isn't a gospel work to do here. That doesn't mean that people aren't getting saved here. They are. But when the Lord opened the doors in this country. It was, it was the gospel went out. That's why we've got so many churches. And there are maybe not churches now. But churches everywhere. Great history behind them. It was an open door. 
So the church age that Philadelphia represents was really uh, similar to those people at the Church of Philadelphia. They had little strength, but they kept the word of the Lord. It was of supreme importance to them, and they denied not his name. What a church they were, and that was the uh, commendation that the Lord gave them. What about the condemnation? None. Nada. Zippo. Not one thing. Not one bad thing to say about that church. And, you know, again, these people that were listening to all that had been said about those other churches that had, had, had just like, well, we've given our lives to the Lord. We've served him. We've held his word as true. I wonder, is he going to say anything? What's he going to say? Bad about us. Nothing. Nothing. And this church... I absolutely believe was a humble church. I don't think for one minute that would have made them puffed up. I don't think it would have because the Lord would have dealt with that if that was the type of heart that they had. I think that this church simply responded, maybe even wept, to know that their master was well pleased. He was well pleased. So nothing bad to say. Because of that, there's no correction. A star. Super pupils. Doing what they're told to do. Following the word of God. Following the will of God. So the Lord has nothing to say. There is a challenge though. Look at verse 11 of chapter 3. And the challenge is simply this. Hold that fast which thou hast. Don't let go of what you have. This is, this is maybe a word or a challenge against... Um, you know, becoming apathetic or becoming self-confident or, or thinking, well, we've made it now. And there's a danger in that. There's a danger in that. And what it says, hold fast what thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Don't let what you have go and fall. Hang in there. Stay in there. Why? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. We've already read it this evening. We're talking about 1 Corinthians 16 verse 9. For a great door and effectual is open unto me. And notice what happens when a great and effectual door is opened. Again, we've dealing with this in Ezra. And there are many adversaries. When God opens a door, Satan will do all he can to stop you going through that door. And doing what God has called you to do. Anytime God opens a door and there is opportunity for the church to make ground, Satan will oppose that with all he can. This is the battle. And this is the reality of it. Whether we believe it, again this morning we looked at that whole thought about perception and truth. Perception is I'm not in a battle as a Christian. Truth is, this is a battlefield. Fact. Fact. Perception, you can think what you want. But if you're a believer, you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are placed in a battle. You were in a battle before, you were battling against God. Now you have surrendered your life to God and you are one of his soldiers and you face a world of opposition. That's the battlefield. There's no neutral territory. 
There's no uh, fence to sit on. There's no uh, place to take a time out. There's no, uh, 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 you know, kind of rest area where you can have tea and coffee and say to the enemy, just give me a little break here. There are no ceasefires. Even though it may look like there are. There are no ceasefires with the enemy we face. You think Putin's bad? Our enemy does not care. He does not care. Why we're talking about Putin, this is a little side note, but I want to say this. Some people are going around saying, you know, is Putin the Antichrist? No. No, the Antichrist doesn't come as a hated figure. The Antichrist comes as a loved figure. You've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. Putin's not the Antichrist. Not by a million, million miles, according to the biblical characteristics of the one who is to come. But that said, when the door is open, there will be opposition. And what we have to do is hold fast to what we have. Hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to the Jesus that's introduced himself to the church of Philadelphia. The one who is holy. The one who is true. The one who has authority. And the one that opens the doors and shuts the doors. You know, Putin can't shut a door for the gospel. He can roll his tanks in. He can roll all the artillery he has in. But he cannot shut the door for the gospel in Ukraine. Do you know why? Because that's not under his power and his authority. It's the Lord that openeth. It's the Lord that shutteth. And the Lord wants that door open for the gospel. It'll stay open for the gospel. Simple. Our challenge is not simply to, to try and, as if we believe that. Our is, challenge is to hold on to that and hold fast to that. That God is sovereign over all. So that's the challenge. Then we get to the comfort. And there is comfort to be had. Let's pick up in uh, verse 10. First of all. Revelation 3 verse 10. It says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which will come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. So there's no doubt about this, that the Lord in the first instance, in the, in the initial interpretation, is dealing with some trial or trouble that this church is going to face. That, you know, there's no doubt about that. You have to take it in that context. But there's also a prophetical picture about the, the, the hour of trouble that is to come. And absolutely, I believe that we will be spared from the wrath to come as the church. And this church at Philadelphia, you know, it, it, you know it's, it's birthed in the church age, we say 18th or 19th century, runs all the way up till the return of the Lord for his church. We call that the rapture. And, and this temptation that's, that's detailed in verse 10, and, and the Lord says he will keep them from the hour of temptation, uh, not keep them through, but keep them from... There's a difference which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. What is this? I believe this is, this is talking about the tribulation period that will come. Turn with me to Matthew, Matthew 24. Matthew 24 and verse number 21. It says, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be. I think that's what the Lord is referring to in, in Revelation uh, chapter 3 when he's dealing with the church at Philadelphia. This is the 
time of Jacob's trouble. This is a tribulation, and we're going to unpack that this as we go through uh, the book of Revelation because we've got one other church to do. And then when we're done with that church, we're done with the church. Church will not appear in any form until Revelation 19, I think. And that's by inference. And then Revelation 21 is the next time Ecclesia is mentioned. We're we're going to look at that as we go through. But the thing is that the Lord is saying, you're not going to have part in that. I will keep you from that. And that is a blessing from the Lord. Absolutely. And, you know, I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. I believe in that because of the, the imminency. And I believe in the doctrine of imminency. And quite frankly, the rapture could have happened to this church. When Paul writes in Thessalonians, they thought they'd missed the rapture. It's an imminent thing. Imminent doesn't mean that it will happen soon. It means that it can happen at any time. And one of the things that marks out the churches of the 18th and 19th century was their fervency for the return of the Lord. That's what pushed their evangelism and their efforts because they were concerned that the Lord would return and they had to be about his business because he was coming soon. And a healthy thought of that should motivate you for mission. It should motivate you for service. It should motivate you for the gospel that the Lord could return at any time. I absolutely believe that that the enemy has done a tremendous job of, 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 of watering this down and Messing with this doctrine of the eminency of the return of the Lord. I really do. Because eminency should have you on your toes. It was eminent all those years ago. It's eminent now. It could happen now. The Lord could return right now. And some of us would say, please, Lord, please. But it might happen. It might happen. Who sat at their Sunday lunch today and thought, The Lord might return right now. I know I didn't. I'm honest. I was too busy eating a Toby Carvery. I wasn't thinking about that. But the truth of it is, he could have. He could have. Now, for the believer, that's not not a, a thought that should bring fear. That's our comfort. That's our hope. This church was going to be spared from the hour of trouble. Then also the Lord gives comfort, verse 12, where he says, and this references us back to what we talked about in the history of Philadelphia. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more, and I write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the New Jerusalem, and I will write upon him my new name. How many names are in there? How many different names? One, two, One. <laughs> so let's read them, all right? Okay, so. Him that overcometh, while I make a pillar in the temple of my God, he shall go no more right. I will write upon him the name of my God. One. The name of the city of my God. Two. And I will write upon him my new name. Three. Do you think that's an accident that there are three names? Absolutely not. What are these names? Do some homework and find out for yourself. Study the word of God and you'll see. But we'll have a new name written upon us. But again, this is a reference back to 
the, the, the environment they were in, where these dignitaries would have their names written on the pillars dedicated to the, the temple that was dedicated to their God, and all their deeds were written on it. And the Lord says, I'm going to write your name uh, on, the, on the temple of my God. And that pillar, there's a, there's a connotation of stability, isn't there, with that? You know, pillars are what keeps the building stable. And the Lord says, you know, don't worry about these people that are getting their names written on pillars out there. I'm going to write your name on the pillar of the temple of my God. It'll be the name of the city of my God, which is the New Jerusalem. Again, speaking of the hour to come and the position that the believer will have, the overcomer. Who is he that overcometh? We've said this week in week out. He that believeth upon the name of God. It's the born again. This is what's going to happen. Don't worry about this world and all the things. This is what you're going to have in heaven. It's positional truth. And it's reassuring truth. And it's comforting truth. That the Lord seals his people. He writes his name upon them. And there's no way this world can ever scrub that name off. It's there for eternity. Thank you, Jesus. So this is the church at Philadelphia. And what does it show us? It shows us that a a church that holds to the word, that sticks to the word, that recognizes that God is holy, he is true, he is sovereign, he is authoritative, and he is the one that opens the doors, should go in confidence when God opens the door. In the confidence that he's there. It's like we talked about this morning. God is with us. If he opens the door, he'll equip us to do what we need to do when we walk through that door. That's not the problem. The problem is making the step from comfortable life to sacrificial living and stepping through that door to what the Lord has for you. And I absolutely believe with a shadow of a doubt that he has something for each and every child of his. Each and every one, without exception, he has something for you. It may not be the mission field. It may not be the pulpit. But he has something for you. And if he's opening that door for you, walk through it and he will be with you. He will guide you. He will lead you. And you will do what he wants you to do. You'll be well pleased and you'll be delightful unto the Lord. Just like the church at Philadelphia was. And that's the church that we want to be. And if we all, all of us that claim the name of Christ, lived in this way, what impact would we have? The very same impact that the church at Philadelphia had then, that the church at Philadelphia, the age that it represents, had where they they went and evangelized. Many, 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 many thousands, millions of people led to the Lord by those faithful people of the 18th and 19th century that got about God's word, that were sold out, that walked through the door that God had opened. So the challenge to us is, what door is God opening for Milton Baptist Church? What uh, door is God opening for you? What are we to do? Because the Lord's return is imminent. It's always been imminent. And when he comes, the door shuts for us. When the Lord comes, we're going to be with him. John 14, praise the Lord. But we're not going to be able to reach the lost because there'll be no lost to reach. We're not going to be able to serve him in his gospel mission because there is no gospel to preach there. Now is the time. Now is the time 
So Philadelphia is the church that we want to be like. We want to take advantage if the door, Lord opens a door for us. Now, we're done. Next week, we have our last church, the Church of Laodicea, which isn't a delightful church. It's a, can you guess, we're in D, it's alliterated. It's a disgusting church. It's literally a church that makes the Lord sick. And I can think of no greater church that represents the church time that we live in right now. With the apostasy we see, with the misuse of the gospel, with the merchandise of the gospel, that makes the Lord sick as Laodicea, the church of the last days. But that's not the church that we want to be. We want to be a church of brotherly love, a church of Philadelphia, a delightful church in whom the Lord's well pleased.